Good evening and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLivingLoco and follow the podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to follow, like, or subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. On tonight's show, I thought I would go a bit off the beaten path and talk about proposed rule changes. One of our affiliate shows, Locked On Montreal Canadiens, had a segment recently talking about proposed rule changes in regards to having substitutes that you might imagine are in, uh, you know, soccer move to the field of hockey. That got me thinking about what kinds of rule changes would make hockey more interesting and more entertaining. You know, what what could structurally change such that you might enhance the quality of the league and have a bit more fun than what we're already seeing. The first major change I would advocate for is getting rid of the salary cap, which of course comes with a whole host of issues, uh, chief among them that I think a lot of people would say that you could buy the league if you are a top team in a top city with a lot of free agent attracting power, and teams that have vast financial reserves would be obviously given preferential treatment. I would think that you have like a luxury tax, and so instead of uh, doing like a salary cap, maybe you kind of look at proportional revenue shares in relation to your expenditures and roster uh, salaries. There need to be certain incentives to avoid essentially super teams that take over the league, but I think that you could work something without having the salary cap that continually hamstrings teams and actually makes it a lot harder to conduct business. The luxury tax would also ensure that, you know, the the top teams with huge revenue streams are actually paying for that. Now, I could see that the NHL really feels like this would, A, disrupt parity and disrupt their current uh, escrow operations, where they tend to have to take out of the escrow account when, um, essentially, teams are spending a lot more money. Conversely, I also think that you are artificially putting a cap on the amount of cash and revenue that you could potentially deal with in terms of making larger deals, um, and trying to essentially bring in more, I guess, liquidity into the league. There are plenty of teams with deep financial reserves that can only express part of that on their roster. And that, you know, that does serve as a, a decent balance against some of the smaller teams that would have trouble financially keeping up. But I'd also be curious to know if, if that really, you know, bears out in terms of the on-ice results, because hockey has a lot of random uh, variables that account for you know, a lot of what happens, I mean, hockey is such a chaotic sport that I tend to think maybe, you know, imposing less of a salary cap and letting teams spend a bit more freely would actually open up some of the powers that currently exist. You don't want it to turn into the world of football where only like, you know, a, a handful of teams from each league end up dominating everything, including international competitions. But you also want to, I, I don't know, just kind of open up the salary cap situation because I feel like uh, a free agency tends to be a bit of a mess, and with these teams that can't really get the kind of talent level that they want, they're extremely reliant on on essentially getting stuff from the draft. And I also think that this sort of, in some ways, encourages teams who are tanking to not really spend and, and continue to get worse, and then use the extra cap space to bring in more draft assets, which, you know, is a model of, of doing things. But I, I really feel like that whole situation of of encouraging tanking in a way, not just financially, but also by rewarding teams with, you know, increased pick odds for that first overall pick, the worse you do. I don't know how I feel about that. 
if you got rid of the salary cap and also changed the way that the lottery system worked instead of first overall going to one of the worst teams in the league, you reward teams that actually do well and continue to invest in their rosters, I wonder if you'd actually see a behavioral change overall. All too often, I think that the league encourages being bad as an okay method of getting top-tier talent, which, look, I understand that that is a method, and this does help, I guess, parity within the league. But I also kind of think that a lot of teams have have continued to do this for many years and not really seen much improvement or really any returns on their investments. You know, I think that the chief case in point is looking at the Buffalo Sabres and the fact that that team continually, no matter what, just seems to be mired in a layer of uh, dysfunctional, I guess, coaching and management, um, poor player performances. It's just a whole mess, and you really don't see any of the fruits of tanking for several years in a row bearing out into much more then, you know, maybe they have some top talent, but they're still not winning games. Earlier in the season, somebody tried to tell me that the Sabres were for real after they had like a, I don't know, like a 10-3 and start or something. I forget exactly what the record was, but it was pretty good. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, you look at the underlying numbers and the team is still fundamentally poor. Fast forward to now and the Sabres are pretty much junk and their captain, Jack Eichel, is probably on the way out, you know, if they can't stabilize the situation. I think, I think Eichel's pretty upset with the fact that he feels like his career is being wasted, and the team direction continues to spiral downwards. And the Sabres haven't really improved over several years of tanking. I mean, they got Rasmus Dahlin, they got Jack Eichel, they've gotten, I think, um, Dylan Cozens. So there's a lot of talent for them to work with, but they just haven't really coalesced it into anything useful. I wonder if continuing to reward these tanking teams is really the best way to get uh, squads improving faster. Maybe instead of just, you know, financial incentives for winning, you also make it more of a meritocracy when it comes to drafting prospects. Good teams can continue to draft good talent and don't have to, you know, rely on, on deep scouting and stuff. They can get a chance at some of the top picks instead of constantly making it such that teams feel they have to be the worst in the league in order to try and round out their, their prospect pool. Again, I do understand the argument for doing this is to uh, essentially embrace and enforce parity, but I just feel like this maybe tends to breed in some really bad uh, behaviors because you don't really see much of an incentive to massively improve. And these teams keep going through the same cycles. They haven't improved, even with the drafts that they've pulled, and the prognosis for improvement continues to be pretty poor. So you know, is this actually having the impact that you want? I mean, these teams are still bottom feeders. You look at the Edmonton Oilers, and sure, the Oilers are, are technically uh, looking at a playoff picture, but that team is still not that good despite drafting one of the best players of this generation and having several first overall picks over the past few years. They're still mired in their own cap hell, and the team is just kind of mediocre at best. The New Jersey Devils ain't looking much better, to be honest. And so that just makes me wonder if this whole push for parity and the idea that you're balancing out the talent uh, pools in the league really has that kind of impact. Seems to me like people just keep mismanaging those assets anyway, so any potential benefits and boons are basically lost. The next rule change that I kind of want to get away from is the concept of shootouts. I really hate shootouts, to be honest, and I feel like shootouts just sort of take away from a lot of the fun. I, I know why they do it. It is a skills challenge. And I think the idea is to, you know, essentially get things over with as soon as possible and, and try to make sure that the guys don't tire themselves out. I kind of feel like shootouts to some degree are, well, I mean, they're fine. They exist and they're a skills challenge. I'm just not a fan of it because I feel like three-on-three -three overtime really is the way to go. 
if you opted to do just say like a, a full-on draw instead of um, having you know a shootout to determine a so-called winner, I wonder if it actually shifts these standings all that much. You know, would having a draw really change things as much? Some part of me just feels like if you can't solve it in overtime, then each team just gets a point and that's it. Call it a day. The shootout point is kind of one of those things that, in a lot of cases, doesn't always help because, in fact, it doesn't really solve things in a tiebreaker dispute. I don't know if filtering out these so-called noise points would really change things, but maybe it uh, maybe it slightly alters the standings a bit, enough so that there is a, a noticeable impact for teams that are maybe surviving just a little bit too much on the coattails of getting through extra time. Or alternatively, if you want to go full chaos, maybe you add one extra five-minute overtime period with two-on-two, or an even shorter period of two-on-two hockey, something that's extremely open, uh, a little bit chaotic, and hopefully encourages a much faster goal-scoring outfit, because it it kind of takes a little bit of the idea of of shootouts, but adds a little bit more um, excitement and energy to it. And you can create a more intriguing pairing when you just have to rely on two players rather than three or four. Maybe that would encourage some extra goal scoring and more tactical creativity, which I think is always one of the biggest things. I think the other rule that definitely needs to change that exists in regulation is how offsides reviews are handled. I know that the league has been talking about uh, taking a look at this stuff because I feel like video review on offsides doesn't really serve the purpose that it was intended to. You know, obviously it comes down to letter of the law kind of stuff, right? But when you're just fractional uh, inches really over the line, I I feel like that really should not discount the goal-scoring effort. And yet, you know, they look at these tiny pictures that there's no way they could really 100% tell, both due to parallax and due to uh, just in general really sharp viewing angles on small screens that are probably low resolution. I don't know if you'd really be able to definitively say that somebody you know, who's maybe a few centimeters over the line is really offsides or not. More often than not, I feel like offsides reviews tend to wipe out goals that actually aren't impacted by the offsides actions themselves. There are certainly cases where I think a video review would help, but if it's only like a few centimeters or something, I really don't know if that qualifies as clear and definitive evidence to overturn the original decision. It just feels like it kind of ruins a lot of a lot of the flow of the game, and I mean, they spend minutes and minutes sitting there going through these reviews, and it really breaks up the action and energy of the whole game. It's also nuts that you often get a penalty if you get the challenge wrong, and it's like, well, you know, maybe just get rid of the challenge to begin with, because offsides reviews are a total crapshoot half the time. The other review that I think definitely needs an overhaul and something I think that was also brought up at some of the uh, ownership meetings has been the goaltending interference review. Because, let's be honest, goalie interference is one of the most controversial calls in the entire league, and it never seems like the officiating crews have a consistent definition. You see in one case, uh, a goalie is actually the one initiating contact, but it's ruled that the player was the one who should have moved out of the crease, and so that would constitute uh, a wipeout of the goal itself. Other times, guys are full-on essentially pushing against the goalie and initiating contact, but they aren't ruled as being uh, interference when it comes to the goal-scoring action itself. And I feel like this just, again, not only disrupts the flow of the game, it honestly influences the results and outcomes of these games in ways that don't really make sense. You know, sometimes these goals that are wiped out or allowed to stand are, you know, so clearly wrong to the average viewer 
that it doesn't make sense as to how they got it wrong in the video review booth. Human error is always a part of these officiating rules, but I just feel like these rules in particular and the way that the video reviews are handled doesn't really seem particularly sensible or logical. For one of the final rule changes, I suppose I this was the one that originally sparked the lock on Canadian show to have a discussion, but, you know, would... Would the NHL benefit from having player uh, substitutions in between games or in the middle of games? And my opinion is yes. I think what you should be allowed to do is have like maybe two guys on standby, um, any player of your choice that would usually be in the press box, and you can make a substitution between periods. Not necessarily during periods, but if somebody gets injured and you want to make sure that you don't go a man down and overtax the rest of your players, you can maybe sub on an extra skater somewhere. These substitutions, of course, would have to be one and done. You can't uh, send the same guy back in, which I know we have seen with the goalies. I just feel like as far as skaters are concerned, you know, if, if they're pulling somebody out, they should not be allowed to sub that player back in. You know, even if it would count as the second substitution, I just feel like that doesn't really make sense. Keep it at, at uh, a locked roster substitution, one in, one out. You should also be allowed two of these substitutions per game, and I feel like the benefit is pretty obvious. You can protect players who are injured and make sure that they get off the ice and seek the medical treatment that they need. And it also allows, you know, the rest of your lines not to be expending extra energy to skate those few extra minutes. Maybe that improves the quality of the hockey. Maybe it wears teams out a little bit less. And then, you know, even without injuries, it allows you to make a substitution if somebody's running out of gas or is clearly just not with it. You can change the tactical approach. You can freshen up a line. You can really do all of these different things, even with just one substitution. Because there are so few players on the ice at any one time, making one substitution can have a dramatic impact on the rest of the game. It also allows you to give younger guys who you maybe don't trust with a full game more experience and a chance to, to roll your prospects out. Maybe a game is a blowout and you feel like this is a comfortable situation to bring in a rookie. Well, here's your chance to do it. Sub them in and see what happens. I really don't see what the argument against this would be, other than maybe there are some active salary changes that would have to occur, but I can't imagine that that would be the case beyond some bonuses and stuff. It just seems like a very sensible change, and one that I think would be very fun to incorporate, especially since it works pretty well in the world of football. To close this out, I thought I would talk about not just rule changes, but some fun uh, rivalry games and matchups that we often see in both hockey and some other sports. And I think to kick us off, we'll start with, of course, the Pittsburgh Penguins versus the Philadelphia Flyers. The historical battle between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Broad Street Bullies has so much history and continues to be a real firecracker of a game, especially when they host outdoor matches. I always think that these rivalry games are great, and they are, you know, not quite uh, as as common for playoff matchups as we see with Pittsburgh and Washington, but I think that there's, in some ways, a lot more energy and occasionally hatred just because you see that these guys are are definitely rivals they have a lot of pennsylvania pride so to speak um and philadelphia and pittsburgh are two natural rivals in the sports scene both have story traditions and histories and both have you know varying levels of playoff success and i think that it's a much more even matchup than what we've seen between say washington and pittsburgh because for the longest time washington and pittsburgh was always a fairly known outcome even though both teams would actually play a fairly even series, it would always end up in Pittsburgh's favor because, for some reason, the Caps just could not close the deal. Washington and Philadelphia is an okay rivalry, but not really as intense as Pittsburgh versus Philadelphia or uh, Pittsburgh versus Washington. So that's, I think, my first favorite matchup. Um, as far as other hockey series go, I think 
naturally Winnipeg versus Nashville is probably one of the best rivalries that I've ever gotten to see. I was very much blessed to go uh, a couple of years ago to 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 the Central Division Finals, which were an amazing uh, set of games, and I got to see games three and four. Now, game four wasn't that great, but, you know, who could forget game three where, you know, Truba and Bufflin combined a tie and then take the lead away from a 3 nothing Nashville, what looked like a dominant first half. Outside of hockey, I think uh, we have derbies between, you know, Real Madrid and uh, FC Barcelona, which is uh, a very classic rivalry. Uh, El Clasico remains one of the most entertaining fixtures in football history and really continues to deliver even as these teams continue to age. It used to be, of course, Ronaldo versus Messi, and now things have changed a bit. And, you know, Bar- Barcelona is not as strong as it used to be. Real Madrid certainly doesn't have uh, Cristiano Ronaldo anymore. But this is still a, a very much a fireworks fixture. And I think that that same kind of thing applies to um, the Revere Derby between uh, FC Schalke and Borussia Dortmund, which if you've never watched Bundesliga football, the Revere Derby remains one of the more intense and is really a, a very extreme, uh, occasionally violent derby. Of the Revere Derbies in recent memory, one of the most infamous ones is when uh, Borussia Dortmund had like a 4 nothing lead and ended up blowing it in spectacular fashion. Now, uh, this actually isn't the most crazy derby in the world. That one still kind of holds a candle for um, Celtic and Rangers from, I believe, the Scottish Premier League. The stories that come out of the Celtic and Ranger games are just unbelievable. I mean, that if you talk about you know football violence and fans really going to war, that is one of the most insane derbies, and you really have to be careful what color clothing you're wearing. It's that serious. Uh, people get hurt, and I, I think there's probably been some some killings involved with that. A little bit insane, and not really my cup of tea. I think I like the hockey rivalries, which are, for the most part, pretty contained and, and pretty controlled. As far as other sports rivalries go, in the NFL, we've got the Ravens versus the Steelers, which I feel like is a very classic uh, blue-collar matchup between two cities with uh, proud industrial roots. Baltimore versus Pittsburgh is, in some ways, kind of like Philadelphia versus Pittsburgh, but I think Baltimore has a lot more in common with Pittsburgh than, say, Philadelphia. Um, and it's kind of interesting because both teams have had a very hard tackle, gritty, but uh, often intelligent approach to the way that they do team construction. Both teams have balanced very good defenses with some offensive prowess, although I think Pittsburgh tended to lean more on the offense than the defense, and Baltimore was kind of the inverse. Those roles have definitely changed over the years, and now Baltimore is an offensive juggernaut, while Pittsburgh is a little bit more on the defensive side of things. Even still, this is a great rivalry and one that I think a lot of people enjoy watching, regardless of their team fanships and affiliations. It's nothing if not spirited, especially on game days. Of the uh, English football, I guess, derbies, you could argue that uh, Manchester United versus Manchester City is one of the bigger ones. This is kind of an interesting one, because for the longest time, City was not really a big club until they came into a lot of money. And so Manchester United, of course, has always had the history and the results for the most part, but that has obviously changed over the past five to ten years. Now that City is a force to be reckoned with, and United has significantly faded, that Derby, I think, definitely lost some steam, but we're starting to see a shifting of power again. United is once again starting to gain a lot of influence, a lot of resources, and they're making a big roster overhaul. I think Manchester United are definitely on the up and up, and and City are certainly declining as players are departing, and Pep Guardiola is probably running out of time there. 
that derby though still is is one to watch and very very fascinating because there's a lot of chaos and a lot of action and uh, oftentimes it's a seesaw battle between two teams with quite a bit of offensive prowess maybe not as strong uh, as they used to be defensively and that always means you're going to get quite a few goals what are your favorite rivalries you should tell me in the twitter comments wherever you can find me at hl living loco or the podcast twitter at lo underscore winnipeg jets i'd love to hear about your favorite sports rivalries and why you love them and maybe i'll even talk about them on the next show thanks so much for listening before you log off be sure to check out our locked on nhl national podcast hosted by sarah avampado have a great night and go jets go